0: Hello and welcome to Erema Soccer. Um, As you know, we bring on guests aimed at helping you learn about the sport at all levels. And I don't think it's uh, unfair or exaggerative in any way to say we have a legend on this week. We are joined by the 22-time national champion, uh, Anson Dorrance. 21 of those championships with the NCAA. And uh, a 22nd before the NCAA-sponsored women's soccer. uh, A women's World Cup winner a seven-time National Coach of the Year and a member of the North Carolina Soccer, North Carolina Sports and National Soccer Hall of Fame, Mr. Anson Dorrance. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Anson.
1: Absolutely. uh, My pleasure. I appreciate the chance to chat.
0: Yeah. And as as an introduction to the kind of man Anson is, I actually read his book, uh, The Man Watching, when I was a, a struggling D3 college coach at Bates College I'd taken over a team that was 0 and 10 in conference and I think one of the things you helped me with with that book Hanson is I I very much had a a math equation in my head back then that the more I watched and the more drills I did and the more I read about when it came to on-field sessions the better my team would eventually be Um, and your man watching book was far more multi layered than that you know it was about player communication it was about culture it was about recruiting it was about strategic development over time and you know it shifted the way I looked at things to the point that every year coaching after that the the influence of it grew so I can't thank you enough and I remember and I'm not even offended if you forgot but you took the time to have a phone conversation with me for about 20-30 minutes when I learned you're an Arsenal fan and um (laughs) <laughs> it's very, very inspiring that someone like you took the time out of your day to talk to me and you really helped me by doing this job so well. And I'm sure you've done it with more people than me.
1: Well, Stuart, you're very kind to share that. Uh, uh, thank you, first of all. And uh, uh, yeah, the um, the Man Watching uh, book written by Tim Carruthers is, is about our culture. And uh, it's. Uh, I think he did a really good job with a book. In fact, uh, he was a Sports Illustrated senior writer that had graduated from the University of North Carolina, and he was becoming rather jaded because in his interviews with uh, the NBA players and the different professionals he had to deal with, uh, he sort of lost his spirit about sport uh, because everyone was so cynical. So he called me up out of the blue and said, Anson, uh, I would love to come down and spend a year with you. uh, If you don't mind, I'd love to write a book about you and the program. And I said, no problem, come on down. And then he asked, you know, who he would have access to thinking that I would restrict him from this player or that player. And I said, no, speak to anyone you like. You know, we're going to be an open book. And he comes down. He doesn't spend a year with us. He spends five years with us because he was enjoying himself so much. And then the book he wrote was actually over a thousand pages. And the publisher told him there is no way we can ever sell 1000 page book. So what they did with a man watching is he cut it down to below 500. And he had this the print as small as possible. In fact, the print was so small right now, at my age, uh, 72 years old, I probably can't read the book because the print's so small. Uh, the margins are thin as can be because he was trying to figure out a way to stuff uh, the book into under 500 pages. So someone would actually buy it. Uh, And honestly, uh, I think he did a good job with the book. Now, it's not a hagiography. I mean, there's a chapter in there that's just laced with everyone that hates me with a passion, giving their opinions. So it's not like the the book does nothing but, you know, blow sunshine. No, Uh, there are people in there that, you know, would love to see me hit by a bus and their opinions are in one of the chapters. Uh, so he's tried to, you know, have a sort of a balance, but, uh, overall, I think anyone that reads it will have the impression that, you know, if you played soccer at the university of North Carolina, you had the time of your life, uh, because that's the way we try to structure everything. We don't take ourselves that seriously. Yeah. We want to try to win every game. We want to try to beat everyone to death, but, uh, we're having a good time. Uh, I don't have any delusions of grandeur. You know, this isn't curing cancer. This isn't solving the world peace problem. I know what I'm doing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a soccer coach and we want to have fun. Uh, we want to certainly get better, uh, but we also certainly want to have a good time. So I think what uh, he did a really good job with in the book is he captured all those elements.
0: Yeah. And one thing I was hoping you could help us with today, Anson, and I know you can because I, you're arguably one of the game's greatest recruiters, if not the greatest at the college level, is there's a lot of questions fly around um, for young kids. Sometimes it's contradictory. They'll get 10, 15 different answers, which for a teenage mind can do nothing but heighten stress and anxiety. So I was just hoping for your take on a couple of things. And one question I heard all the time in 16 years of college coaching is what do you look for in a player? And it's, it's almost an impossible one to answer because, you know, Lionel Messi and Virgil van Dijk are both good players and they bear no similarities. You know, I always <laughs> used to see it. I was trying to build a team that could do everything with a bunch of players where none of them can do everything. And you would deal often, especially when I started in D3, with trying to find players with a sharp edge as opposed to well-rounded. But there's a story in the man watching about the time you saw Mia Ham, And again, it was just a revealing way to look at things that you had players like her you'd identify before they even got the ball, which a lot of kids need to know that because they're waiting to make a big play, right? Score a goal, make a Hollywood pass to stand out. What is it that stands out to you when you're recruiting players?
1: Well, first of all, the Mia Ham story is actually a good one. A friend of mine by the name of John Casaboon was the uh, JV coach here at the University of North Carolina. And I knew him. I liked him. We became really good friends. And out of the blue, uh, he was uh, uh, he had finished coaching with us and he was in uh, North Texas. And back in the old days, the way they constructed uh, the selection for the U.S. national teams is each state had a state team in the different age groups. And so based on the age group you were coaching, you would assemble the top players in your state, form a team, and then you would play other state teams. Or occasionally we would have these events where the entire region, like the South, would get together with state teams from across the South. And then from that group, you would pick a regional team. And then the four regional teams would get together across the country, they would pick a national team. So he calls me up. He's the North Texas State coach. He says, Anson, you gotta see this kid. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, uh, there's this kid uh, uh, by the name of Mia Ham that, uh, that I'm training right now and my North Texas state team. And I think you got to look at her for the U.S. full national team. And I was thinking, well, uh, you know, how old is she? And he said, well, she's 14. I said, John, you want me to come and look at a 14 year old for the U.S. full national team? And I'm thinking to myself, this guy has gone nuts. I don't know what he's been drinking since he left, you know, Chapel Hill. But I think he's lost his mind. But he kept talking and talking and talking. I said, all right, all right, all right. I'll come down and look at her. And I came down and I didn't want her to be identified to me before the contest. So I am across the field from John. I didn't want to see him in the huddle talking to certain players. I got there just as the game was beginning. I stood across the field from him. And then all of a sudden, uh, this team kicked off. And I saw this skinny little black-haired girl run like she was shot out of a cannon. That's all I needed. I walked around the field. I said, John, is that Mia ham? And he said, yes. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh. Her acceleration was extraordinary. I hadn't seen anything like that. And obviously, I continued to watch her play, and she stood out and everything else as well. But I identified her from her first sprint off the kickoff. She closed like an absolute wild animal on a hunt to stay alive. I mean, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this was, this was incredible. So yep, I identified her before she touched the ball. But first of all, let me address your question because I think it's a very good one. I have three major player conferences a year with my kids. And uh, when I meet with them, I talk about uh, 10 and now it's actually going to be 11 and possibly 12 different qualities that I'm going to be addressing with them in this player conference. And obviously, I have a lot of data to support all the different things we're going to talk about. Uh, But uh, the things I talk about when I'm meeting with these players are the things I look for when I'm trying to sort out which player to recruit. And here they go. It's self-discipline, it's competitive fire, it's self-belief, it's love of the ball, it's love of playing the game, it's love of watching the game. It's basically coachability, it, it's grit, it's energizing. It's the athletic platform, which of course is the and ham story. Uh, it's all these different elements that make all the difference in the world and the construct of an extraordinary player. So if we were to put these things and you would have a Virgil van Dyke and a Lionel Messi next to each other, they would shoot to the top of almost every category, even though, as you mentioned, they are completely different kinds of players. And so for me, it's how you, I guess, certify or quantify these 11 different elements. Now, the athletic elements are relatively easy to quantify. So in the athletic elements, you've got, you know, basically speed, which is your ability to run over 30 meters, which is what we time. You have acceleration, which is the 10 meter sprint in that 30 meter uh, run. Uh, It's stuff like the beep test, which measures your cardiovascular efficiency. It's vertical jump, which we all understand. It's agility, the ability to change directions and still, you know, do it explosively. So you can take almost every element in the 11 or 12 things that we would want to certify and quantify. And those are all the elements that can distinguish an extraordinary player. Um, But the other elements are also critical. The three loves are vital. If you don't love the ball, if you don't love playing the game, and you don't love watching the game, you're not going to get to the highest level. Because trust me, to master the ball, you've got to love it. And the players that are extraordinarily athletic and extraordinarily competitive that don't love the ball are not going to make it at the highest level i mean even though yeah the knobby styles do get on the field even though their their quality is tattooing people and not really <laughs> anything they're doing with the ball but still the element of the loves the three loves the ball the game and you know watching it and playing it i mean these are all critical elements if you take any piece out of this algorithm that i'm uh, chatting with you about You're not going to make it at the highest level. So for me, uh, it's very difficult to measure that in the recruiting process. But that's what I'm trying to measure visually while I'm watching these kids. Uh, And then, of course, once they get into my environment, I have ways to quantify those things because now, of course, I'm going to try to take them to the promised land.
0: That's great. Great information. You know, and love is an underused word because in the college system where there's certain unique obstacles when it comes to time on the ball and time together, um, the really only cure-all is a player who just wants to do it, you know, doesn't, doesn't need pushing, doesn't always need the structure. So I think I, that's real good insight. Um, another thing talked about a lot without much detail ever being given is the timelines because uh, I coached men's soccer for 16 years in college and while it's very visible and very clear that the timelines on the men's and women's side are different, um, you know, we'd have kids in in the Dartmouth pool panicking for a decision seven months before we ever plan to make one. Um, you know, if if there is a top level recruit, and I'm assuming there's levels of recruit, I'm assuming there's girls who get committed early in the cycle, girls who get committed in the middle of the cycle after sifting through some layers and girls who probably get committed at the end of the cycle every year. What What is that timeline? If you're on, you know, a, not even just UNC, a power five recruit When should they expect to be getting offers or to be getting significant interest and visits on on the journey?
1: Well, honestly, uh, all of us, because it's such a difficult thing uh, to sort out. We all want to get in early because we don't want to lose a kid because uh, the kid didn't think we were interested and then they committed elsewhere. So we've got to figure out a way to get in early. In fact, there was a stretch uh, where... um, I was so afraid to make an early commitment to a player because the data had told me that when I basically get an early commitment, the kid doesn't always pan out. Because obviously you would love to get, you know, back in the old days, a freshman, sophomore commitment. But the earlier the kid committed, the odds were against her being the sort of player that you wanted her to be. And the later she committed, because you're seeing her late, it would be a more accurate assessment of her potential. So here's the data I collected. And back in the old days, I was only allowed to recruit five kids a year. And by only allowed to recruit five years, uh, five kids a year, what that means is uh, it's very difficult to be admitted to the University of North Carolina. And uh, for an in-state kid, it's, it's not easy, uh, but it's, uh, it's less difficult than trying to be admitted as an out-of-stater. But for me to compete at a national level, most of my recruits are going to come from out-of-state. The out-of-state admissions criteria is so high, there were very few girls that would be admitted without my help academically. So I've got this five, I have five golden tickets that I can extend to someone to get into the university that don't qualify in the competitive admit process. And so I had to spend them wisely. This was the dilemma back in the day where we could get a commitment from a eighth grader or ninth grader. The earlier the commitment was made, the less, <laughs> I guess, accurate that kid was gonna be in terms of being the kid that would get on the field early as a freshman. And so here was my, the, the I guess, the typical uh, data analysis. In a five-player recruiting class, one player was usually better than I thought. Um, one player was about what I thought. Um, sometimes two. Two players were worse than I thought. And one of the players in the five was so bad, she wouldn't get on the field in, f- in four years. And so basically, I had a 60% hit rate and a recruiting class of five, because two are about what I thought. One was better than I thought, but the other two, that's a that's a miserable hit rate. Because if I'm only allowed to recruit five kids a year and my hit rate is sixty percent, I'm gonna have some holes, uh, holes on the field, holes you know in my substitution pattern, and it just wasn't a very good hit rate. The later you make a commitment the more accurate your assessment's gonna be. Uh, But back in the old days, my hit rate was about 60%. And so uh, does this mean this criteria I was uh, using uh, weren't good criteria? No, it was excellent. Because after I got them, this criteria really spat out who was gonna make it. And not only who was gonna make it here for me, the kids that finished in the top four in my competitive cauldron, not only were all able to sign pro contracts, Every one of those four ended up playing for the United States full team. And so we had designed a player development pipeline that was very, very effective at helping kids get to the promised land. And I think the piece that they learned best coming through my program was mentality, which of course, was one of the many criticisms of the U S team in this recent world cup, uh, because mentality is not easy to coach. And it's got to be through a different sort of construct uh, that a player has to sort of fight their way through to develop this this piece that makes all the difference in the world. And so uh, for me, um the ring that rules the mall is competitive fire. And yet, if you don't have the three loves, if you don't love the ball, love playing the game, and love watching the game, you're not going to have the skill set to make it. So it still is an algorithm of these 11 or 12 uh, critical elements that can take you to where you want to go.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think you've really hit on something that's, I believe, separated you. You know, like there's there's coaches who've, you know, won one significant thing in their career, like me. And then there's someone who's that's won true. 22, like you. And I think, I first of all, I don't think 60% is that bad, to be honest with you. I think we always massively overrate our projections of the future as a species the nfl draft i think is a disaster every year and they talk about tanking for players just to pick a guy who doesn't end up the best player in his position you know you got well as the example of why you have to tank but they all forgot they picked him 15th after trubisky so i think what separates you is it seems like players go in there and a they love it and put a group of people together who love something you'll do some very powerful things but B, you're sort of taking personal responsibility for the development. For me, and I mean personal experience, I saw this. There's one too many coaches who obsess over the recruitment phase and then won't ever quite care about that player as much again, if they're honest about it. They're on to the next recruiting class. And this kid, they're either doing a good job or they have disappointed with them. And there's not really the personal responsibility of like, I have to maximise this hand now. I have to develop this player. I have to spend four years growing this player. And and if I can't do that, it's not the kid's fault. Um, I think every college coach needs that to to succeed. You have to love the sort of, I forgot the exact phrase he used, but it was something like never-ending ascendancy. You have to love the art of taking a human at a given point in their life and moving them up the steps of the ladder through the four years. And somewhere in there is probably why this, this resume is so big for so long, you know, it's, it's not been a flash in the pan.
1: Well, first of all, thanks for quoting that, because uh, you did it properly. Yeah, we believe in living on a never-ending ascension. So for us, when we're assessing a player's growth, <clears throat> we're assessing the player against herself. And so, yeah, she's trying to fight her way into the field, but she's also trying to improve. And for me, the player that keeps improving <laughs> is the player that I treasure most. Not that we haven't had some amazing players that that didn't have huge value just because of the level they were basically competing at for us. But for me, watching a player get better and better and better is the most satisfying thing about coaching Uh, because that's, I think, uh, the art form. Uh, The player development environment is critical, but the different things you bring in to help the player get to the promised land, I think is also critical. And for me, uh, there are sort of three platforms that make all the difference in the world. The first one, and I'm going to get back to basics this spring with this, is character growth. So the most critical thing for me, the the top award at our athletic banquet is not the MVP. The top award at our athletic banquet is the Kelly Muldoon Award for character. And so for me, that's the largest trophy at our banquet. Uh, That's the player I talk about the most. Uh, Because what I want everyone in the room to appreciate is that's the most fundamental thing that you can address personally that has nothing to do with anything except yourself, that you can make the biggest changes in and ascend to whatever level you like. And we've got uh, a 13 core values that we expect the girls to live by. Uh, and then we've got a, a peer evaluation twice a year where the players are basically giving each player an assessment of where she stands in how she lives each core value. And <clears throat> so for me, that's everything. Uh, Your success in life, in my opinion, is going to be directly related to uh, your character. And so, yeah, we've got some fabulous soccer players. And I think that's really cool. And that's going to help us compete every year. And that's never going to change. We're always going to have a talented roster. But for me, the real satisfaction is watching a kid uh, just continue to improve her character. So when she graduates, she's got sort of a North Star Uh, that was structured through uh, the scaffolding of our basically core values. Uh, Because what's happening now, as you know, is uh, um, the world is becoming more and more secular. And not only is the world becoming more and more secular, which means we're sort of losing our connection with uh, a spiritual foundation, it's also becoming more tribal. And what's constructing all of us right now is actually the algorithm <laughs> the algorithm of our social media feeds. So what do you believe in? What you believe in is the, the, the clicks you make that are sending the information you wanna hear to, to your phone uh, that's structuring what you believe in. And so what's starting to happen now is we all, you know, sort of cater uh, into our own misinformation silo and that's constructing exactly who we are and what we're becoming. And that's an absolute travesty. And so what I try to do with the core values is I try to structure something that's uh, basically true and honest. Uh, and then when we try to evaluate these kids to let them know that there are aspects of their character they can address that can help them get to another level, because after college, no one's going to care about you know, assessing them to help them become a better human being. And so I think this is sort of like like the last chance saloon uh, for us to impact on their human development. And so uh, even though, yep, I'm a soccer coach, but I think uh, what I am primarily, if I'm doing my best job, is I'm into the business of human development. And so the most critical piece in what I do is to share these core values with everyone on my roster, expect them to live them, and then give them a peer evaluation of what their teammates think of whether or not they're living them. That's the foundation, I think. The thing that's built on that is the competitive cauldron. We have analytics people that are getting credit uh, from our School of Data Science that come into practice, and they're turning the practice competitions and data into a ranking. So every night between 9 and 10 PM, the algorithm comes out that's sent to me. I look at it. If I approve it, we send it out to every player. So in the evening before every kid goes to bed, they have an assessment of how they didn't practice. If we have five different elements in that day's practice, like a 1v1 tournament, a 7v7 tournament, a serving and heading exercise, a shooting exercise, um, and then let's assume an 11v11 scrimmage where possession stats are kept. A kid at the end of the evening gets an assessment of where she finished in every single category, a ranking If we have a 30 player roster and 26 are field players, the 26 field players are ranked in how they finished in every exercise. So that night they get immediate feedback on performance. Uh, They also get, because they're all wearing GPS units, they get an assessment of distance covered, what percentage that distance was done at high speed, an algorithm of changing directions explosively, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these elements are all done through the GPS units And so the amount of data we send a kid every night is gonna help that kid make a decision. If they weren't satisfied with where they finished, they get to go to sleep and make a decision the next day about where they're gonna be the next day. And so for us, what we're trying to do is to motivate them to compete in everything. Because uh, if you look at uh, Anders Ericsson's idea of deliberate practice, he's the one that has sort of written the book on what you can do in a training environment to basically improve yourself the most, one of the most critical elements of his algorithm to help you get to the promised land is feedback. We give the feedback immediately, which the player then, because the player still has great memory of that practice, gets to decide. Yep, I just didn't go after it in this today, but I'll make you know I'll do a better job tomorrow. And all of a sudden, if they're truly motivated, they will get to another level. So the competitive cauldron would be the second uh, most critical piece. The third piece, and this is where the the social mores right now and the way we're raising our kids is really uh, hurting uh, a lot of us. And this is uh, everyone's personal narrative. Basically, uh, I teach a class at UNC with two other uh, wonderful professors called the Art and Science of Expertise. One of the lectures I am asked to give is the lecture on personal narrative. What I'm talking about in my personal narrative lecture is that 85% of us have no self-awareness. And this is shocking because everyone thinks they have incredible self-awareness, but only 15% of us have any real self-awareness. And so basically what all of us have constructed is we have constructed a personal narrative that is designed to protect us from accountability and pain. So... What does it do? We write a narrative that gives us excuses for why we failed at something. And uh, we blame everyone and their mother for our failures. How has this been constructed for us? Well, it's usually done for a 17 to 21 year old player that I'm coaching. It's shaped by their parents. So their parents are constructing a false narrative for their kid and why it's done out of love. They love their kid. So the last thing they want their kid to experience is pain or the responsibility of being mediocre. And so what is a parent doing to protect their kid from the possibility they are mediocre? Well, they create a narrative that protects them from the mediocrity that the world is telling them they actually are. So how do I dictate mediocrity to a player in the parent's mind? Well, I don't start her or I don't play her maximum minutes. So what's the parent going to do now to make sure their their sweet kid whom they love to pieces that they've watched her whole life and every time they've watched her, she's been the best player in the field. They've constructed a narrative to protect this kid from the possibility that maybe they weren't as good as mom and dad and this girl thought. Maybe they are a bit mediocre. Uh, and so they construct a narrative that basically throws me under the bus for not playing them. Mm-hmm. Now, this protects the kid from pain and accountability, but what they're doing is they're destroying their kid. They're not preparing their kid for the real world because let's face it, once they get out there in the real world, yep, it's sink or swim, baby. And uh, the parent's not gonna be there, you know, keeping their head above water. And one of the best things for all of us growing up, honestly, is failure. One of my favorite quotes from a professor on this campus was, All the professors on campus have an opportunity to win a teaching award. And uh, whenever we have the 10 to 12 professors across campus that won teaching awards, they always interview them. One of the questions they always ask these professors is, who's the greatest teacher you've ever had and why? And a lot of them say, oh, the best teacher I ever had was my kindergarten teacher or, you know, this grad assistant when I was in college trying to, you know, shape my, my construction of my master's thesis and they had all these different teachers my favorite one was this teacher here at unc and comp literature that said the best teacher i've ever had in my life is failure and i was thinking bingo i think that's been my best teacher same i think i do a better job coaching my team after a loss than i do after a win Because basically, and you've gone through it, because if you've coached as long as you have, there are sleepless nights after a loss. And if you are uh, the sort of uh, coach, you know, uh, worth your salt, um, you're blaming yourself. You didn't have a good enough taper. You know, you didn't do this. You didn't do that. And you're reviewing every mistake you made in the process up to basically the game and you're gonna try to deconstruct it in a way the following week to make sure those mistakes aren't made again. And so what ends up happening is one of my main jobs as a coach in my meetings with these young women is to make sure their personal narratives are true. The best way for me to do that in the self-discipline, competitive fire, love of the ball, love of playing the game, love of watching the game is to give them sort of a number about where they are in each of these categories that are critical for their success and then having them take ownership. Rather than rely on a parent to protect them from the possibility they're mediocre. So those three things, the core values, the uh, competitive cauldron and the personal narrative, I think, are the things that I most aggressively address to try to help these young women uh, get to their potential. Yeah, I
0: think that's a, a fascinating way to frame it and I get asked a lot, a lot of time by my friends in England because they they'll read Twitter and they'll be like what's it like in America is there no technical training and all this and I just think the evaluation of youth development is so off because I don't see any difference really in technical development between England and America there's a lot of the same philosophies going around a lot of the same things we've all got access to the internet we all travel around and do similar licenses but like If you're looking at development, there is a reality of life where when you wake up in the morning, you want the world to look a certain way, and it looks different. And you can't develop someone without teaching them that gap and then teaching them how to build bridges and cross that gap. But there seems to be so much of coaching and teaching and parenting obsessed around convincing everyone there's no gap at all, and anything that is wrong is not your fault. And it's like you're almost handcuffing a kid through life, right? And send them to the wolves. It's, it's an awful way to do things. You have to learn resilience. You have to learn persistence. You have to learn to live and perform in environments where the world doesn't always look how you want it to look. And there's a, it all seems to be getting very utopian. Like personally, I find it hilarious that we can lock a kid in a room and tell them their SAT score will dictate their future education and the jobs they get. And by the way, we're not going to tell you the scores for three weeks but then we turn around and pretend that same kid can't aspire to win games and lose them without some kind of emotional damage. I mean, it's just nonsense. It's, <laughs> it's, and that's, that's the first time I've heard the the personal narrative, but that's, that's really hitting on it, right? Like what, what are you telling yourself every day? And if it's not accurate, what shot have you ever got? Like no, exactly right. Taking you somewhere yeah. you're not going.
1: <laughs> you are spot on. And here's what's interesting. Um, obviously, I think it's extraordinary that I have the privilege of working uh, in an elite academic environment. And obviously you've done it too. I mean, Dartmouth uh, is an extraordinary academic environment. So you have been coaching at the highest level uh, academically in the world. I mean, so you've also had similar opportunities to associate with uh, intellects uh, that surround the campus that make a huge difference. And so one year, uh, it was actually 2012, my athletic director brought in the preeminent sociologist on campus to chat with all of us coaches and uh, the uh, charge uh was for this sociologist to tell us who we were coaching because obviously you know we don't follow it as closely as the preeminent campus sociologist was studying the population so he comes in and I'll be honest with you I can't remember everything he said in his lecture but I will never forget The first two slides and they had a powerful effect on me. The first slide at the top had the date. The date was 1969. I will never forget this slide because that was the year I graduated from high school. So 1969 is important to me because that was my high school graduation year. Underneath the date was this kid coming home from school with all F's on his report card and in the uh, PowerPoint slide the parents are screaming at the kid. Then all of a sudden the date at the top of the slide shifted to the year he was giving the lecture, which was 2012. And so now underneath 2012, the kid is coming home from school with all Fs on his report card and the parents are screaming at the teacher. I didn't need to hear the rest of that lecture because that was spot on. So now if something's going wrong in this kid's life, I am to blame. It has nothing to do with the kid. So who are the parents throwing under the bus? Are the parents holding the kid accountable for why they're not starting and playing? Are the parents basically saying, well, you know, yeah, if you want to play more a kick-ass in practice or take responsibility or work harder or go in fit, you know, because I know the coach sent you this in the summer and you use that, you know, summer uh, uh, fitness stuff uh, to line the bottom of your parrot's cage. You never even looked at it. So, you know, I would love it if the parents would you know, pull the kid aside and say, yep, yeah, this, is, this is your responsibility. Yeah. I'm going to help pay for your education. I'm going to love you to death, whether or not you play. But if you want to get on the field, it's up to you. And obviously, yeah. you're not convincing the coach uh, that you should be playing. Because trust me, if you could convince the coach you should be playing, you'd be playing. Because he doesn't want to deliberately lose. So trust me. <laughs> He's not picking the 11 players that will help him lose every game. He's picking the 11 players that convinced him in practice we're going to help him win every game. So if you're not in that 11, get to work. Yeah. And don't come don't come whining to me. This is your thing. My job is to keep you alive and to protect you from the chaos of the universe, but I'm not going to basically navigate your athletic career. That's up to you. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to play, get to work, because clearly uh, you're not working hard enough.
0: Yeah. So here's another bit of reality I would like to um, get from, you know, an expert source here, because when I was at Dartmouth, what I always found a flawed question and perspective from parents were, well, tell me what he needs to be good at. And then through the lens of if he's good at that, he could play at Dartmouth. Right. But then we're like, we're just busting at the seams with 300 to 500 kids early in a recruitment cycle. And then as you go to camps and you go to games and you get the academic reads, it probably two thirds probably delete themselves through attrition. And then you start to get positions with five to seven names at each position on the depth chart. And just that's right at the end of the cycle, the math's still against you. Um, And it's almost like, can, can she play for UNC? Yes or no. It's like, they have to realize that if, a player is a number 9 and the answer is yes i mean how many kids do you see in a year that the answer is yes for in terms of level of play for unc
1: well there are more than you would think um but you're right then you run into other elements obviously one of the elements and you would run into it more at dartmouth is can you get the kid into school mm-hmm. So, and obviously at Dartmouth, yeah, you're eliminating two thirds. We probably don't eliminate as many as you guys do academically, but we certainly eliminate a percentage. So that's, that's certainly one factor. Uh, And then the other factor is who's playing your number nine right now. Because if you've got an elite number nine, but you know that this kid's only got one year left, you're going to want to bring in another elite number nine to maybe serve as a reserve until that nine graduates to have this kid come in. Then the issue is, certainly with the transfer portal, will the kid have the patience to spend a year coming off the bench for your senior number nine in order to start as a sophomore? And these days, it's like the kids and the parents don't have any patience. It's like, they're not on the field immediately, they're in the transfer portal. And, uh, so there's, <laughs> there's no longer any sort of, you know, patience to, to grind a bit and then, uh, get on the field. And so, uh, uh, I guess the, the willingness to, you know, put your nose to the grindstone grind away, uh, because you know, if you work hard, you've got an opportunity cause this opportunity will open up next year. Uh, yeah. and then, no, I'm not playing. I'm off to the portal. Uh, and then, you know, it's just the grass is always greener. And so that's uh, something that's also part of the current landscape that obviously we didn't really have to deal with 10 to 15 years ago. Because 10 to 15 years ago, a kid would come in and they would say, yeah, all right, I've got to eventually prove that I can play this position. She leaves in a year. Yeah, I'm going to keep grinding now because I want to be in that position next year. I don't want some incoming freshman okay. to be on grind away right now. So uh, there are all sorts of different elements that uh, will – make it difficult for a kid to get on the field. But I have to be completely honest. I see a lot of kids uh, that I think ca- can help us. Um, and then the question is, can I get them? Because uh, around here, uh, well, you're you're a part of this recruiting pl- uh, platform. Uh, Stanford probably has first pick. Why? Because they're a great academic institution and they pour money into athletics. And they don't have the off-season restrictions that the Ivy League schools have, even though academically they can compete with Stanford. And so Stanford puts itself in a unique position because in our demographic, as you well know, they would love their kids to get an extraordinary education. So that's a weapon that any Ivy League school or Stanford can use against all the rest of us because academically they're in a separate class. And so that's, you know, puts us in the recruiting pattern behind the eight ball. Um, yeah. so that's another uh, factor for us. And so, uh um, yeah, there are all these different elements uh, that can get in the way of us end up uh, getting a kid. Uh, But obviously we do have some weapons of our own. Uh, They just built me a beautiful new stadium. And so in the old days, I think I was six for 46 against Stanford. In other words, in the recruiting game, we went after the same kid, 46 different times. I only got the kid six out of 46 times, but We've played Stanford 16 times. They've only beaten us twice. So even though they've ended up with the best players, I think we do a better job developing our kids and competing against them. Um, But still, if we had their talent, it would be so easy to win, but they're not the only one. I was about to talk to you about this story earlier. Um, Duke is also a great institution. And usually an elite player that's applying to University of North Carolina is also applying to Duke in Virginia. Uh, Virginia is also an excellent school academically, and they have an excellent uh, soccer coach and team, as does Duke. So usually a kid comes to visit us, and after they visit us, they're invariably going to Duke either later that day, if it's an uno- unofficial visit, or on the way home, if they're driving in from New Jersey, they're stopping off at Virginia. Here was the dilemma, and I learned about this the hard way. A kid comes in, And we have seen the kid and we know she's good, but we don't know how good. So we're not in a position to offer the kid a scholarship. She comes into us. We don't offer. She goes over to Duke. Duke offers. And then all of a sudden we see her play a bit more. And then we offer. It's too late. The fact that on her first visit, we didn't offer puts Duke in the driver's seat. And there was a stretch where Duke was winning every head to head against us. And so I got together with my staff and I said, you know what? We got to just decide. All right, this kid's visiting us. Let's do our homework and decide if we're going to offer. And then, of course, that also screwed up the uh, you know 60%, made it even worse because now we're making offers for a kid we're not absolutely convinced of. And the reason we're making the offer is because we know she's going to get the offer from Duke and then we're not going to get her. Uh, so uh, that also put a certain pressure on us to make early decisions, which obviously screwed up our recruiting because there was a stretch where Duke was getting everyone and I knew why. Well, you didn't offer. Well, we hadn't seen you play enough. I mean, forgive me, but we didn't, you know, but it didn't matter, Uh, you know, it's sort of like a courtship. Um, If, you know, uh, you don't ask them out uh, on a date uh, and all of a sudden someone else does, you're finished. Um, But you hadn't even seen them yet or met them yet or whatever, but it didn't matter. So, uh, so all of a sudden, you know, we're gambling that this kid comes in. Well, she looks pretty good. Yeah. I saw her play. Yeah. She was okay. But you know, I'm not convinced yet, but all, by the way, if she goes to Duke, she's going to get an offer. Yeah. Let's, let's give her an offer. So bang, we make an offer. And then of course we live to regret it because she wasn't as good as we thought. Uh, So anyway, that's what complicates. There's a a real
0: interesting book by the secret footballer, um, which is a famous franchise in England. It's anonymous players. And they talk about scouting, and it alludes a little bit to what you just said. They said the, the art of scouting is almost dead because it used to be three, four, five different scouts who were all proven elite level would watch and see different things. But now as soon as a big fish makes a move, everyone else just panics and makes the same move. So it's really just dictated by groupthink and a fear of missing out as opposed to backing your instincts and your gut. I thought that was – and they, and they go into research of the NFL where – there's been five-year studies where the NFL, even with their combine, picks the best player available about 36% of the time. I mean.
1: Yeah, I mean, the NFL is a great study because uh, uh, the greatest football player of all time was drafted 199th. No one wanted him. No one wanted him. He's drafted 199. What's his name? His name is Tom Brady. I thought Tom you meant Brady- Tom he will he will retire the greatest. Well, I think he is retired. He is the greatest football player of all time. Easily. And easily. Exactly. Right. He was drafted 199. <laughs> so um everyone wants to think this is a science, that recruiting is a science. It's not. Who the heck knows when the kid's going to be motivated or even if they're going to be motivated? Well, I brought in some. Yeah, go you, ahead. I was
0: you know when you said about the three loves. I think Brady's the ultimate example. I mean, if you read his TB12 book, How This Man Sleeps, How This Man Eats, to an extent who he married, his spiritual beliefs, his daily meditations, this man is obsessed with becoming the best version of himself. Now, how you can't scout that. Like, you (laughs) know, like he might have been 199th the day he was drafted, but it didn't matter because he lived in a way for 5, 10, 15 years that those guys better than him couldn't keep up. It's all... Very temporary, who the best is, right?
1: Wonderful statement. Uh, what you've just said is absolutely spot on. How can you spot that? Yep. How can you spot it? Because um, I brought in kids that I you know, never thought were going to make it, and they became extraordinary. In fact, uh, uh, there's a woman uh, that was involved in a podcast, coincidentally, and we had such a good time chatting together. She's down here in Chapel Hill <laughs> teaching in our business school, and we're writing a book together on culture. And we're telling stories about kids. There's this one kid uh, that's gonna be in the book by the name of Libby Moore. Libby Moore uh, is the daughter of an orthopedic surgeon in Wilmington, North Carolina. And her dad either went to undergraduate school here and medical school here, but basically the family loved everything about North Carolina. So she was interested in coming to us and I just wasn't convinced. And the last thing you wanna do is to, you know, lead someone astray you always want to be honest because then they will always trust you so in my meetings with Libby when it was clear she was going to come here and I didn't have to do anything I didn't offer a scholarship I didn't have to you know leverage her into being admitted she was a good enough student to get in without my help I didn't have to do anything for her all I had to do was embrace her onto my roster so in my one of my final meetings with her when it was clear she wanted to come and was going to come I said well Libby uh and this was in front of her parents I said, please know that.'" said, uh, please Um, you're never going to play a quality minute in four years. If that doesn't bother you, by all means, come. But I don't want to be disingenuous and tell you I'm excited to bring you in so you're going to play. You're not going to play. I'm saying this in front of her parents. She nodded. She smiled. Okay, all right. I've I've told her, I've warned her. She comes in and yeah, her first semester, uh, she struggled uh, to get any time at all but she is grinding and grinding and grinding. And then all of a sudden she goes home on Christmas break her freshman year. She comes back a completely different player by January from how hard she worked over break. This kid that I would say was never gonna start for us or get a a quality minute in four years starts for me in the spring. And then she ended up graduating, signing a pro contract. I mean, it's one of these stories that's so good. We're writing about it in our book. Yes. I didn't know anything about the kid. I didn't know inside, you know, this very average soccer player was beating this heart that just was not going to be overshadowed. She was going to grind and grind and grind. And, you know, I just love the kid, but I love kids like that. And then I'm not going to mention names on this one. We brought in other kids that were world beaters. Didn't work hard survived on their talent, mailed it in. Now, did they play? Yep, they played because their talent was overwhelming. But they didn't improve dramatically. They were rarely the margin of victory. And so I've had players at both extremes. And so, yep, this NFL who do we sign game is a tough one. And does anyone know the two players that were drafted ahead of Michael Jordan? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know them. I it, and I've read the story a hundred times, and their names were in the story. I still can't tell you what their names were. Yeah, because Jordan was drafted third, and then have you seen the uh, uh, the Jordan Nike origin story? It was made into a movie. I don't think so. It's a great movie actually, because Michael Jordan's mother transformed athletics because this. Shoe company that was nowhere in the world at the time called Nike decided they needed to, you know, try to bring in uh, a player. They didn't have a shot at, you know, the first two players because, I don't know, Reebok and Adidas had them signed already. So they were going after Michael Jordan. So, how did Nike get Michael Jordan? The mom said, I will not have my son sign with you unless he gets a percentage of every one of the shoes that you sell with his logo on it. And back in the day, that deal was never made. The shoe companies thought that was ridiculous. And so somehow, Knight, the Nike CEO signed off on it. And then of course he made history because Nike went from sort of a backwater shoe company to the best in the world because it made a deal with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan to this day, and I think this is the correct expression for it, and forgive me if I've uh, not used, select the correct word. He gets 300 to $400 million of passive uh, salary every year. Passive salary means he doesn't have to do anything. It's because of the number of shoes he sells with his logo on it. 300 to 400 million a year in passive income because of the deal his mother negotiated for him with Nike before Nike was anything. Yeah, that's insane. But he performed.
0: That he did. Yep. And he, he loved performed. basketball. I've yeah. seen uh, I've seen the Last Chance documentary. I didn't really grow up on Jordan like Americans did. So that documentary was all new information for me. Yeah. Um, loved it. Loved well, it. you know,
1: you talk about the three loves. Well, the thing I loved about Michael Jordan's basketball contract is a lot of these contracts basically prevented the athletes from doing anything that might injure them. And so almost every contract for an elite basketball player, <laughs> has that they couldn't play basketball outside of the training environments and the game environments of the NBA. Michael Jordan specifically had in his contract, I can play basketball anywhere, anytime, with and against anyone I want. Why? love of the frigging game yeah that's awesome so he had a love of the game in his contract and that's who he was and of course that's why he became you know who he became i mean which was extraordinary
0: yeah and then that's funny about the contract you say though because his buddy rodman is fighting hulk hogan basketball but um another topic i wanted to cover with you today is uh ID camps, and they're in a they're a lightning rod in the uh, in the parent world, right? And I think one of the reasons it gets so heated is people can say totally different things and both be telling the truth. You know, people will say, "Well, you signed guys uh, from Dartmouth without them attending your camps, correct?" You know, kids that we were much more sure of, and you'd usually seen play a higher level than would be at the camp. You know, especially the top end MLS next guys. Yes, we did. You don't sign anybody from the camps. Not true, actually. You know, they're often at Dartmouth, the last couple of spots on, the, uh, on the, the class would be filled by kids at camp. Now, camp was usually not the first time we saw these kids. In one instance, it was where a kid would come on, <clears throat> ended up actually scoring a couple of winning goals in his first two years, and he just was fantastic over the course of five years. He's certainly a statistical anom- anomaly, but it happens. But for me, camps are opportunity. For the majority of kids, I would say there is a small minority who you can watch and be certain of. You know, you're mere Hams and you you wouldn't need an ID camp scenario. There's probably a certain where you watch and you probably know that it's going to be a no. And, you know, you can't sleep at night if you're pushing the camp to all those kids. But I would say there is a maybe 60 percent of the class in the middle where you actually don't know. You know This one's good at this, this one's good at that, this one's good at Dartmouth but brings in a higher academic index, this one you'd have to work harder for so you don't know and the opportunity to get them all on the same field and not have to project, well, this kid was great in a high school game in Colorado, this kid wasn't as good playing for Dallas v. Philadelphia but it's a higher level game and you're always guessing and projecting and trying to sort of do maths in your head as to how the the performances you watch stack up against each other. I thought there was a purity in the camps of they're all on the same playing field, and all the resume melts away. So what what are your thoughts on ID camps and their role in the recruiting process?
1: Well, for me, they're critical because uh, we have a February ID camp where we're making some decisions on the amount of scholarship money because we're seeing them against the other kids that we're distributing scholarship money to. So that ID camp for us is critical. But we also have a a reputation of a really good summer camp. And believe it or not, there was one year where seven out of the 11 starters on a national championship team came through our summer camp. So we have uh, a history of recruiting kids out of the summer camp that also make a difference. But right now, our primary recruiting window... uh, Now, these are kids we've seen before. Uh, We've, you know try to invite them into the ID camp so we can watch them in greater detail. Uh, But the February ID camp for us, because we can't really talk to the kids or make an offer usually until like June of that year. So uh, a 2026 who we can't talk to yet. um, We're bringing in as many as we can that we like for the ID camp in February because we want to be able to make them an offer on June 15th. We're using the February ID camp as a final, you know, hurrah for us to decide on. And obviously we're all we all have limited scholarship money where our money's going to go. And so on June 15th, we are making offers as we pick up the phone uh, and calling them. And we're saying, um, bang, here's what uh, we have for you. And so for us, the February ID p- camp is absolutely critical uh, not so much for us to make a decision on the fact we're going to recruit him. No, we are going to recruit him, but that camp allows us to decide, you know what? I think this is a full scholarship kid, or you know what? I think she can get on the field by the time she's a, a, a sophomore. Let's give her tuition. So it's yeah. where we're parsing the the final offer.
0: It's very important.
1: Yeah, no, for us it is. Yeah.
0: And just to uh... Quick uh, mention of that, um com is uh the information on the UNC camps. Now, another angle worth looking at this from is obviously it's a uh, pretty vital cog in the UNC recruiting. But when I was coaching at Bates in the D3 NESCAC, mm-hmm. I signed three players in four years from the Dartmouth camp. Because mm-hmm. I would go to the Dartmouth camp knowing the level of player Dartmouth brought in knowing the level of academics that Dartmouth brought in, which was kind of a filter for me, and pretty fertile recruiting ground, So I, I don't know the numbers, but if you go to the UNC camp and it doesn't work out for whatever reason with UNC, I imagine there's a network and a web of coaches around and beneath that camp where these kids will get exposure to.
1: Well, what we do for those kids is, even though we don't hire coaches from other schools, What we do, because you mentioned this earlier, that uh, let's assume uh, we're recruiting, uh, because now we're allowed to recruit seven kids a year. Uh, So of the seven kids that we're actively recruiting, every one of our first choices has a backup or two. And uh, how have we identified those backups? Well, they've come to our camps. Now, do we get all seven that we recruit every year? No, of course not. Uh, We may only get, you know, two or three or four of them one year. And so we're using backups that have come to our camps. But what we will also do for these kids that are part of our recruiting network, uh, while we're waiting for our top choices to decide, sometimes our top choices do come. And then what we always do for those kids is serve as references for them, um, to let them know that, you know what, uh, uh, if that kid hadn't come, we would have recruited you. So if you need me to make that statement to any of the other college coaches that are chasing you, even if it's a rival, We'll make that call for you so obviously if the kid will uh, you know take enough interest in us uh, to have us as her first choice and then if it doesn't work out we're not deserting that kid so we've made all kinds of calls for kids that uh, we ended up not being able to recruit because the first choice ended up coming to us and here's what's interesting i was telling you earlier about this book i'm writing with chris porath uh, and i was talking about uh, the libby moore story we've got another story about Kristen Aquavella. Uh, Kristen Aquavella was one of the backups. She was the backup for probably the most uh, fertile recruiting class I've ever recruited in my life. And who was in that class? Well, it was Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly, and Julie Foudy. And all three of those players were like one, two, three for me in recruiting. But we had a backup for each one. Well, to make a long story short, Mia did end up coming. So did Christine Lilly. But we ended up losing Julie Foudy to Stanford. She was from California. Um, As a kid, she drew this picture of her attending Stanford. And of course, uh, that's where she ended up going. So her backup was a girl by the name of Kristen Aquavella from uh, the Virginia Beach area because her dad was a dentist in the U.S. Navy. So anyway... um, we're chasing Foudy, chasing Foudy, chasing Foudy. We lose her. And so, you know, obviously I was upset because I really liked Foudy, not just as a player, but as a person, but it's the way it works. And so who am I calling? I'm calling Kristen Aquavella, And I called her up and I said, you know, and I was honest with Kristen. I said, you know what, you're a backup for Julie Foudy. If she ends up coming, we won't have a place for you. But this time when I called her, I said, well, hey, Kristen, If you want to be a Tar Heel, it's still there. Fowdy has decided to go to Stanford. So Kristen Aquavella ends up coming in. Now, was she the level of Julie Fowdy? No, she wasn't. But she was a remarkable human being. And she worked her rear end off. Uh, She played a lot of minutes, uh, probably rarely as a starter, but maybe occasionally as a starter. She graduates. And uh, while she was at UNC, uh, We've got a Naval ROTC program and uh, her dad asked her when she was growing up, well, uh, do you want to join the Navy? And did dad also ask that to his sons? And everyone in the family said no. But all of a sudden in uh, Kristen Aquavella's sophomore year, she decides to uh, uh, attend our Naval ROTC program, which is an officer development program. Uh, for uh, the Navy here at the University of North Carolina. So what does she end up doing after she graduates? Well, she jumps into the Navy like her dad. Where is she now? She's an admiral in the US Navy. That's and of awesome. course, the reason we've got her in our book is she talks about all the lessons she learned uh, as you know a player at the University of North Carolina. And so what's uh, really fascinating uh, is getting back to what you and I were chatting about before. We don't know what's inside all these kids, but what we can try to do obviously is to serve them in the most aggressive way. And sometimes the service uh, is helping them get to the US national team or Olympic team or sign a pro contract. But obviously the most important thing for me is always their human development. And there's no greater example of that than uh, Libby Moore, who you know, despite uh, us bringing in more talented kids fought her way into the lineup. And again, that's the Tom Brady effect. You know, who knew what was inside his heart uh, when he assessed his talent as 199th? Who knew what was in Libby Moore's heart? Who knew what was in Kristen Aquavella's heart when she came here and made the best of her circumstances here and is now one of the leaders in the world's most powerful Navy? I mean, so for me, uh, these are all wonderful stories about uh, these things that, you and I can't parse in the recruiting process. We can't look into someone's heart and mind and sort out how hard they're going to work and what their ambitions truly are. Yeah. Uh, but this is for me, what makes the collegiate game endlessly interesting and fascinating.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned books a couple of times. There's uh, two more books. I think that are very worthy of mention because they're both focused on development in different areas, vision of a champion and, uh, which I would say is fair to uh, say focuses on the development of a young athlete and the mindset that will help them. And anybody listening to this, I'm sure you can see the the benefit will be in those pages. And uh, the one I'm going to read that I haven't read yet is "Training Soc- Soccer Champions," which uh, seems to be more on the coach development uh, side of things, which I'm interested in because I sometimes I'll get a, I get it get a little bit frustrated with the um, you used the word tribal uh, earlier. I think coach development has, has lost its way, to be honest with you. And I think it's people who are trying to attach themselves to one element when there's probably 10, 15, 20, 20 elements of coach development that need to exist and fight against the other elements and talk about which one's more important and which one matters and which one doesn't. And I do believe it, uh, it breeds very limited players. And it, it breeds players who come up with a preference of how to play and a preference of how to approach the game and, you know, I've I've been in a third tier pro environment where kids will come in on trial, by the way, having never kicked a pro ball and start wanting to have conversations about how they want to play and how they'll succeed. Well, those kids are out the door the next day because, it's <laughs> you know, you don't go into pro environments. And I had to speak to a couple of Dartmouth kids where they get very, very tribal about how they play and very purist. I'm like, just understand if you. If you don't get drafted to the best team at MLS and you end up going USL Championship, make sure this, this frame you're looking at it through isn't the difference between you playing this game for a living or not. Because by the way, you laugh at Burnley on TV, you'd love to play for Burnley. Like if, if it was reality. <laughs> and I think coach development has gone a bit off. I was I'm not even a USA fan, I'm an England fan. I've a soft spot for the USA. I've made my living here for two decades now, but I just feel like they they lost a penalty shootout in the last World Cup. To a team that was no better than them technically, at least not to any visible, measurable area I could see, and all of a sudden it's everybody with we're neglecting technique, we're obsessed with athleticism, and like literally everybody's saying this, but everybody's saying that they're the only one who can see it when it's the only thing people are saying, and it's it lacks substance, it mm-hmm. lacks accuracy, and I think it's a it's a dangerous thing to break off the parts of the game because you should look to ascend physically you should look to ascend with your fitness with your mindset with your technical ability with your tactical ability you don't like choose one you get better at everything and i i feel like that's getting lost in a lot of youth coaching nowadays what are your thoughts on that
1: well first of all uh, uh, what you shared i think is wonderfully insightful and i appreciate you bringing up uh, um basically uh training soccer champions uh And I'll tell a story about that, and then I'll jump into the the rest of this conversation that you've raised. Um, One of the coolest things about writing that book is it resonated, and not just in my sport, by the way, because in the summer of uh, 2004, uh, one of the President Bushes was honoring all of the reigning national champions in Division I. And so there's this long security line to get into the White House. And uh, I am dressed to the nines appropriately to, uh, out of respect for the presidency. And so is everyone else in the line, including all of my uh, players are all dressed, you know, wonderfully. And I can see this white haired guy fighting his way up the line. And uh, he gets in front of me and he extends me his hand. He says, Coach, uh, uh, do you know who I am? I said, I'm sorry, sir, I don't. He says, well, my name is Pete Carroll. I'm the football coach at the University of Southern California. And we use your book to train our football team with. And I'm thinking to myself, you are kidding me. You use a women's soccer book to train your football team with at the University of Southern California. And you've just won the national championship in football. I thought this was incredible. And so anyway, uh, to make a long story short, um, he leaves USC that summer and ends up coaching uh, the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. And uh, he's in Charlotte playing against the Charlotte pro team. Chapel Hill is only an hour and a half away from Charlotte. He calls me up and said, Anson, uh, I want to honor you on my sideline. Please come in because I want to honor you for the book we learned so much uh, about coaching football from. I said, oh my gosh, Pete, I'd love to come, but I'm playing against the University of Miami. I can't get away, but I would love to come visit you guys and spend a week with you guys in Seattle. Um, Is that possible in the postseason? He says, well, Anson, my team sucks this year. There's no way we're going to make the postseason. Then all of a sudden, I think he gets rid of one of his linebackers. And apparently the locker room completely changed when he took this negative influence off his roster. And all of a sudden, he is in the playoffs. And coincidentally, who's he playing the week he invites me in to visit? He's playing the Charlotte team. Anyway, I spent a week with him up there, and I loved everything about it. But what I love mostly is he wrote this book called Win Forever. There on page 148 of his book, He's selling my book saying we have this day called Competitive Wednesdays. On Competitive Wednesdays, it's basically the O-line against the D-line in the red zone. It's the uh, receivers against the D-backs. It's the linebackers against the running backs. It's the first-string quarterback against the second-string quarterback. He's basically taken the philosophy of training soccer champions, which is the cauldron. It's about competing in practice to become the best you can be and then certifying it ranking people which is exactly what we do so we took that out of that book and i absolutely love it and treasure it so uh, pete carroll to this day um certifies that that day competitive wednesdays he stole from a women's soccer coach are you freaking kidding me and we we've heard uh, people in the nhl have used it because my brother's driving one i mean i'm driving somewhere one day and pete calls me up my brother says answer you watching the hurricane game We've got a pro hockey team about 35 minutes away from where I live. I said, Pete, I'm not, I'm driving. He says, well, the blues coach, and this is about 10 or 15 years ago, is talking at, at halftime about using your book to train his hockey team with, and then there are various NBA coaches. So basically the theme of this book is to create an elite elite athlete by competing in practice, but also certifying it, ranking it. So what you get out of the players is you get an intensity in practice. That's critical if you wanna win games. And so that book uh, obviously ha- is still sells. Um, and I absolutely love it. And even though one third of it is obsolete, uh, the publisher called me up about 10, 15 years ago because someone called me up and said, Anson, uh, um, have you seen what your book is selling for on eBay? Cause it was out of print. I said, no, what is it selling for? He says, it's selling for over a hundred bucks. I said, you are freaking kidding me. So <laughs> I had a box of these books in the basement So I pulled it out and made a small, you know, a women's soccer fortune selling this book that was clearly obsolete, but apparently not. Uh, And it's still, I mean, I still get residual checks on that book because of what it tries to teach. And there was uh, some other things you were talking about, uh, Stuart, that I want to get to. So what else were we chatting about? Because I want to get into that as well.
0: Uh, Well, what I'm interested in you taking is the, uh, The state of U.S. women's soccer development. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Let me jump into that right away. First of all, I am always embarrassed uh, on the attack uh, that Vladko's had to deal with, but also that team (laughs) has had to deal with. Whenever I'm called about a a coach that's actively coaching or one that finished their career, I'm going to do nothing but support them. And what I tell people when they talk about this early elimination, I tell them that, you know what, Uh, there's not... that Swedish team will never watch that game again for the rest of their lives with the exception of their goalkeeper. Why? Because if any Swedish player watched that game, they would realize, oh my God, we had our asses handed to us. The United States was so much better and we lost through basically brilliant goalkeeping and a fluke. We were basically lucky as hell. And I make that statement all the time because if that team had beaten Sweden and advanced like it should have, for example, the NFL... I'm sorry, in the uh, NBA, for you to advance, you have to win a best of seven. So that's the way the NBA champion is crowned, best of seven. If the United States had been in a best of seven with Sweden, we would have taken them out. And we would have taken out almost every team in that event. But the nature of our game, one game, single elimination event, anyone can win on any day because Aston Villa, of course, just beat Arsenal. Does that mean in a best of seven, Aston... Villa would win four out of seven. Hell no. I mean, yeah. so we all know that on any given day in a game like ours, anyone can win, especially if you're playing against an organized uh, uh, structure like Sweden had, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, for me, I hate the penalty kick as a solution. We should steal from field hockey, field hockey, end of regulation. We go from 11 to 11 to eight V eight. What I would do is go from 11 to 11, eight V eight in the overtime period and then every five minutes, take off a player, but also introduce what field like he does, which is no offsides. All right. You're in uh, overtime. Penalty kicks is ridiculous. That's not indicative of a soccer game, but go eight, v eight, take offsides away, take a player off every five minutes. I did some color commentating in the women's pro league back in the day. I would have loved to have been a color commentator. Debating, you know, which three players the coach was gonna take off to go eight v eight and what system they should play. Cause of course there's now no offsides. Which player would I take off next? The conversation around the game, if it went into overtime would be off the charts. Everyone having an opinion. And it's a real football game. It's not a you know a free throw shooting contest at the end of the game to see who wins the frigging basketball game. No, it's a real field hockey game. Let's make it a real soccer game. I hate penalty kicks. I've hated the way penalty kicks have scarred my players. I've had players that have lost national championships because of a missed penalty kick. It destroys them. Unless we think, Oh, they're just fragile little college girls. No, Lionel Messi after missing a penalty kick in a Copa America quit. I remember that quit. He quit the frigging game. The greatest player of all time quit. So please don't tell me that, oh, well, you're, you know, fragile little college girls can't handle this. No. Lionel Messi quit. There's nothing more humiliating than missing a penalty kick when you're supposed to make it. So why put anyone through that torture? Why? But also why resolve the game that way? I absolutely hate it. So for me, 8v8, if we had gone to an 8v8 against Sweden, taking a player off every five minutes with no offsides, trust me, Sweden would no longer have lasted. And who knows how far we would have gone if that would have been the solution. So please don't tell me about what a miserable team the United States had in this World Cup. Because I respect Vladko. I respect his players. I respected the way we played against Sweden. And uh, I'm just so sorry that our game is designed in such a way. And our overtimes are designed and our solutions for advancements are designed in such an archaic way that the best team does not move on.
0: I Another question I'd like your insight (laughs) in, because I have an opinion. I don't have 2% of the women's soccer experience you have at that level. But uh, as a fan, I always remember the end of the Dallas Cowboys dynasty. And in all kinds of ways, on and off the field, it seemed like just clinging on to a handful of star players almost until they just couldn't go no more, really decayed the team in a way that lasted after these players had gone. So that wording might be a bit dramatic, but is there, and we don't need to name names, this isn't like a hot take podcast, but is there a a few names in there with magnificent storied careers that the USA might have been better off replacing with younger, more unproven players in that given tournament?
1: I think so. But here's the way I think we solve it. Obviously, the coach you've hired, the legacy of that coach and the legacy of the team is going to be based on the performance for that event. But World Cups, you now get to select a 23-player roster. What I think should be done now to protect the future is the coach gets to select basically maybe 19 players. The sporting director gets to select four. So the coach has to figure out a way with a 23-player roster to pick 19 across that coach's country to compete effectively in the World Cup. Honestly, yeah, with injuries, you need more than 19, but then you've got alternates there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the sporting (laughs) director should be able to pick four. That'll protect the future. And I think that's absolutely critical. Uh, What Jill Ellis achieved winning two championships in a row is absolutely remarkable. And of course, I'm very proud of what she did, but also proud of the kids that she had on both rosters. And I think they made a difference, but I still think the bottom four in her roster should have been the future. And if they had been the future, the early exit for the United States in the Olympics post second world championship may have been mitigated. so for me, Bottom four, sporting director. And, of course, who are you picking? Well, you're picking kids that are going to be critical for that next Olympics or that next World Cup. So that what you don't have is what Vladko had to do post-Olympics for his 2023 roster, which to have, have half veterans and half rookies. So it should be sort of bled into the player development structure.
0: I think that's actually brilliant.
1: Yeah. And taken out of the hands of the coach that has to win now, because any coach can win with 19. Just pick wisely.
0: Yeah. You know, there was one example, and I I remember it as a kid. uh, I might have the year wrong, but I think it was or two. And Sven Ericsson had these Premier League stars left and right to choose from. And he picked Theo Walcott, who was 16. I don't even know if he'd played 10 first team games. And there was uproar. And then, but then you listen to Ericsson talk about it. And they were like, well, why are you bringing this kid? He's he's not going to impact the tournament. And Ericsson was like, well, yeah, he's not. But Owen oh, is, Rooney is, Beckham is. And he talked about the benefit of four years down the line, Theo Walcott not going to his first tournament. And like, instead of like I watching on TV, learning day-to-day from the icons, the Rios, the John Terrys. And it's not become a pattern since, and it's not become systemic like you've just suggested, but it's actually a brilliant idea because there is two elements to coaching. One is win now, and that's always going to keep your job, so you have to prioritize it. But, like, yeah, what about two years down the line? What about four years down the line?
1: Yeah, you've got to take care of the future. And uh, one of the things I thought was critical when I was the coach in 1991 was the future. So uh, my roster certainly had the veterans that were going to help me win immediately, but it also had the future. And as a result, the United States won for a long time. They won uh, uh, the 96 Olympics. They won the 99 World Cup. They won uh, uh, in Greece the Olympics again. So I think uh, one of your moral imperatives has to be, yeah, uh, let's take care of the present, but let's also seed for the future. And I think that has to be a part of the uh, organizational structure uh, with any elite team you pick for any event. Now, the Olympic roster is a lot smaller. So I don't know whether you're able to do that as easily with the Olympic roster, because I think that roster might only be 18. But I think in a 23-player roster, uh, uh, sacrificing four for your sporting director so the sporting director can try to protect the future, I think uh, uh, it will be sensible. Uh, and that's what I would certainly write uh, uh, right can. about the
0: Olympics, because I, I was reading about the uh, flag football recently. Mm-hmm. And the reason they use flag football and the reason lacrosse went down to 7 v 7 is the the whole Olympics has something like a 10,000 athlete, athlete cap. Mm-hmm. So every sport has to trim their rosters accordingly. Rugby's a 15 a side game, Olympic rugby seven a side. So, yeah, I imagine these Olympic rosters are super tight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, uh, don't give the sporting director an opportunity to invade that roster, but a world cup roster, I think, uh, uh, it makes sense to me. It
0: is. And I used to do it a bit in the college game, you know, there'd be days where you're looking at the one year vision and then there'd be some midweek games or some games where you get a big halftime lead. You start to switch to your four year vision and put some kids in the game for 15, 20 minutes that otherwise might not play. You know, I I don't know if I ever did it in a fully structured way, but I'd always try and kids who weren't starters now try and get them five to 10 games off the bench or something, because when your seniors are gone, you need these kids now, and it better not be their first, their first experience of the college game is when you need them, you know?
1: I agree with you completely, so much so that we do have a substitution pattern. Okay. In fact, I'm, I'm criticized for it um, by the colored commentators. Uh, but also I'm recruited against it uh, by my colleagues that, you know, I try to tell a recruit that they're not going to develop to the same extent when they're not playing 90 minutes a match. Because what we try to do is we obviously play, uh, sometimes we even split goalkeepers, give them each a half, but we try to rotate as many players as we can because we do want to build for the future, but also we want to play a pressing game. And one I think the one of the best rules uh, in the modern uh, professional game is – we went from three to five substitutes. Agreed. I think it's fantastic. And uh, I don't even think most of the professional coaches are using those substitutes appropriately because I think you can really develop your roster. And obviously for teams playing in all these different events like the Champions League, the Caribou Cup, the, you know, the FA Cup, you're going to need to try to have a fresh roster. So I know the philosophy of some coaches is to play these players in this event, your backup goalkeeper might play the FA cup and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I've always believed is because we press and because of the rules in the collegiate game where I can have uh, basically re-entry uh, we try to play, you know, some of our kids and we're pressing for 90 minutes. We try to sub in a collection at the end of the first half, but also in the middle of the second half. And as a result, our consistency over time is extraordinary whereas most programs sort of bounce up and down, we pretty much remain in the top, you know, four uh, almost every year because we do substitute and allow the kids to play in games because they're serving as a rest period for a team that presses aggressively for 90 minutes. So that's a philosophy I fully embrace, and it's also a part of our player development plan.
0: Yeah, and you can't measure it, but there's – Is going to be an uptick in a sophomore performance of a kid thanks to those games off the bench. No question. Same as a junior, same as a senior. Yeah.
1: And even though it's counterintuitive when uh, uh, we're recruiting, um, I can remember Julie Foudy, the player, of course, that played for me in 91 that I failed to get that went to Stanford. She's now doing color commentating in the women's collegiate game and also for the national team. And during one game when she was color commentating for the national uh, uh, team, she was uh, excited about the substitution of Katerina Macario into the game. And uh, what she was excited about being a Stanford graduate, uh, Katarina played at Stanford uh, and had a fabulous uh, uh, career there. And she's being subbed in for the national team for the first time. And here was Julie Foudy's color commentator. <clears throat> she says, oh, my gosh, this is tremendous. It looks like they're subbing in Katarina Macario And I am so proud being a Stanford grad. This will be Stanford's 21st player that has a cap now for the US full national team. And then she skips a beat and says, now we are only 40 places behind the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. (laughs) So it's interesting, even though my colleagues recruit against the fact that uh, we substitute players, the substitution of these players uh, actually enhances their player development. Because then when they're in the game, they're sprinting for the entire time they're in there rather than teams that have a line of confrontation halfway between the tangent of the center circle and the tangent of the D we don't have that line of confrontation. Our line of confrontation is we've lost the ball. And if we've lost the ball near your corner flag, we're winning it back at your corner flag. So we don't rest while the other team starts to uh, construct their attack. We are pressing the entire time. So In the course of a 60 to 70 minutes that one of my starters is playing up front or in the tens, um, basically they're sprinting the whole time. So the amount of energy they're putting in is comparable to a kid that's playing the 90 minutes. So for me, um, I don't think uh, my colleagues can appreciate uh, that there is a lot of sense to uh, our pattern.
0: There is. I mean, there's also a sports psychology sense. I mean, it's all very nice to say everybody should be bought in. But if you have 30 players and you start 11, you sub in three every week you tell the other 16 to stay bought in. You can't it's give hard. them 15, 20 minutes a game. Like, I don't know, man, you got to meet these kids halfway sometimes. It doesn't have no, to you're,
1: be. You're absolutely correct. Stuart. Uh, tragically, I've got a, a podcast coming up. So let's uh, do one final question. I'm not a podcast. I've got a, a zoom call uh, now, coming.
0: Up. No further questions needed to be honest with you. this is tremendously educational, but just to review, um, carolinagirlssoccertamp.com and vision of a champion uh, book dedicated to young athletes mindset and training soccer champions uh book dedicated towards coach development anson can't thank you enough and i'm sure there's people listening going to benefit from your knowledge just like i have
1: well Stuart, i've thoroughly enjoyed it you've made this into a conversation which i much prefer prefer so thank you for making me feel so comfortable but also uh The questions were spot on. I think you're getting to the heart of what makes a difference for elite player development. But also, uh, there are all sorts of ways that we can enhance our game. And I think these conversations can build it. And I would love for there to be a movement out there to change the way games are decided. I wish, you know, anyone that's listening that agrees with me uh, can figure out a solution to uh, uh, the overtime, which is ridiculous when you think about it. And the other thing is we need to give uh, our referees more weapons. Because right now the yellow card, red card thing isn't working, in my opinion. Right now I am stunned every time a, a difficult call is made. The referee is surrounded by players uh, that are arguing over this, that, and the other thing. And one of the issues is he doesn't have enough weapons. <clears throat> I, I used to play rugby. I love the respect rugby players had for the referee. Damn. If a rugby player runs at the referee with any sort of complaints, he is literally thrown off the field. So it just wasn't permitted. So the respect for the referee was there. And of course, it doesn't have the same impact when you have 15 players against 15 when you lose one. It's not as catastrophic. But I would love to give the referee uh, the opportunity to give someone an opportunity to spend time in the sin bin. We need that weapon because obviously right now in every corner kick, everyone's hugging everyone else. No, if you're hugging someone and the VAR spots it, you are off the field for whatever. 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And the VAR can mention this because let's figure out a way. If you grab a jersey, you're automatically off the field. Because, yeah, grabbing jerseys right now, you get the yellow card. The the first yellow card is useless. It does nothing. And then to penalize a team in the next game for an offense in this game is absolutely absurd. It's yep. absolutely absurd. It's absurd. So what do you do? Let's give the referee the sin bin opportunity. So let's give them different cards. Yeah, if you want to keep the yellow red card, that's fine. I think the yellow card is a waste of time. I think the way a guy gets a red card is if it's a catastrophic attempt to injure someone. Yeah, red card them, Get him off the field. Whenever that happens, get a player off the field if they're trying to injure an opponent. That's simple. The yellow cards, you can replace them with sin bins. So based on the severity of the offense, get them off the field. And so maybe you have two different colors. Maybe the yellow card is a 30-minute sin bin. <clears throat> maybe a green card is a 15-minute sin bin. And decide, you know, how you're going to spend it. Or, you know, maybe, you know, have a var- variety of things. But for me right now, uh, there's no respect for the referee because they all run at him whenever he makes a difficult call. No. If that happens, you're off the field. You approach me and you don't have a captain's armband on, you are off the field. It's not yeah, complex.
0: I think is a long, long way behind rugby in refereeing culture. And it's not the referees because we, we brought in VAR. It didn't get any better. Now the ref I gets all the decisions made by VAR. So
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it 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 it's is, what's going on is horrible. We need to give these referees more weapons. The yellow card is useless uh let's get let's throw kids off the field because i know i love to play so much and i'm sure anyone playing at a pro level if you throw them off the field they will correct their behavior they all want to play yep. and then the other thing i mean for my color commentators hat god it'd be exciting what happens when you're sin bin down two or three players what system do you play i mean <laughs> who you move around you know blah 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 So uh, I think it'll be fascinating for the spectator. Uh, It'll protect the referee. It'll make the game cleaner. There'll be less hugging on corner kicks. There'll be less, you know, grabbing of jerseys. There'll be less professional fouls. And I think the game will be enhanced. And the referee, I think, will thank all of us if we have the courage to bring this up as we address the issues in our own game.
0: Very interesting points. Anson,
1: thank you again. Thank you all for listening. See you next time on Aramis Soccer.